It had been six months since Jada's dream. In one sense, the dream had faded into the background. In another, it was always with her. She no longer felt like just a kid, going to school and hanging out with her friends. She couldn't shake the feeling that her life had a purpose. But she couldn't put her finger on what that purpose was. After trying to ignore it for months now, she simply couldn't ignore it anymore. Jada thought and thought. And thought. But she couldn't come up with an answer. Was it just a crazy dream that didn't mean anything? It couldn't be. The amazing woman who had visited her in that dream seemed so real. But if the dream did mean her life had some purpose, surely she would have figured it out by now. Right? And what about the woman's question? Who are your people? Well, she was black. Of course black folk were her people. How was that even a question? But her visitor had seemed so serious when she asked it. The more Jada thought, the more she felt confused. And she couldn't get the questions out of her head. She lay in bed until late into the night thinking about it all, unable to sleep. Finally, she drifted off. Jada found herself in a room. There was something familiar about the room. She had been here before. Then she remembered. It was the room where she had met that amazing woman. Jada turned and looked behind her. There she was, just as she had been before. Same long flowing robes, same deep sense of peace and love that accompanied her. Jada felt an overwhelming sense of relief. Where have you been? I've missed you so much. I have so many questions. I need you. Why haven't you come back before? My dear, I can't help you with all of that. I can't tell you my answers. You have to find your own answers. Every word from her was so soft, so reassuring. But Jada was so disappointed. I've looked and looked, but I just don't know the answers. But if you can't help me, why did you come back? I came to tell you it's time. It's time? Time for what? It's time for you to answer the great riddle. The great riddle? You mean who are my people? But I don't know the answer. I really don't. I'm sorry. I've tried to figure it out. I have. But I just don't know. I'm so sorry. Jada was devastated. She wanted to please this amazing, loving woman so much, but she felt like she could only let her down. Then Jada saw a warm, accepting smile spread over the woman's face. Yes, you do. You've always known it. I just wanted you to know that it's time. Time? Even if I knew the answer, who would I tell it to? But the woman had turned around and was walking out of the room. She paused briefly and looked back at Jada, again with a reassuring smile. Don't worry, hun. You'll know. Jada woke with a start. The feeling of peace she had from her visitor was overwhelming, but now Jada had more questions than ever. How was she supposed to give an answer she didn't have to someone she didn't know? None of it made any sense. As the feeling of peace wore off, a sense of desperation and failure began to envelop Jada. Eventually, she fell back to sleep.
Upon waking the next morning, Jada had no more answers than before, but she did have a renewed sense of purpose. On the bus, she thought and thought about it all the way to school. When she got there, she still didn't have an answer, but she did have a first step, and that was good enough for now. As Jada got off the bus, her friend Molly came up to her, asking, How's it going? Hey, Molly. I've made a decision. I'm going to the Black Lives Matter protest on Saturday. Saturday? But we're going to the mall. We've been planning this for two weeks. The mall isn't going anywhere. We can go anytime you want. The rally's only going to be on Saturday. But the whole group's going, Jada. It won't be the same without you. How could Jada tell Molly? Hanging out at the mall with her friends used to be so fun for her. Now it just seemed meaningless. Jada stopped walking and looked at her friend. Molly, thanks. I love hanging out with you and the gang, but this is weighing on me. People are dying all the time. I can't just sit and do nothing anymore. My brother Caleb just got a car. Every time he gets into it, I worry. What if he's stopped by a cop? You know his mouth. What if he says something? Will that be the last time I see him? I shouldn't have to worry every time my brother drives. Black people all across our nation shouldn't have to be afraid to drive. Jada could tell she was beginning to get a little worked up. She lowered her voice and said, Molly, this is something I just have to do. Jada was surprised by her friend's response. Okay, sure. If you feel like that, the rally it is. We'll get together early Saturday morning and we'll go together. Once they told the group and Jada explained how important it was to her, they all said they were in too. Jada felt good. Not only was she participating in an important cause, but also she was helping to add six voices that wouldn't have been at the rally otherwise. At the rally, Jada was energized. She felt like she was doing something she was supposed to be doing. She loved the speakers. Her shouts and cheers got her friends going as well, who were now cheering as loudly as she was. After about 45 minutes of speeches, the speaker on stage was wrapping up his speech, and Jada knew what she needed to do. She didn't think about it. She just did it. She slipped through the crowd and made her way to the speaker's platform. Next to the platform, she saw what looked like the next speaker with a microphone in her hand. Jada went up to her and asked, Would it be okay if I went out and said a few words? She was surprised at how confident her words sounded. Normally, she would be terrified to do something so bold, but Jada wasn't afraid at all. She had something she needed to say, and she just had to say it. The woman looked at Jada for a moment. Then she smiled and seemed to be impressed with someone so young and self-assured. Sure, hun, she said, and handed Jada the microphone. The current speaker finished and walked off the stage. Jada went up onto the platform. Her friends, who had been caught up in the speeches, hadn't noticed Jada walking away. Now, as they saw her walking onto the stage, they erupted with shouts and cheers. Their cheers excited the whole crowd, who also began to cheer for this young speaker. That gave Jada just the energy she needed. She held up the mic and started talking. Hi. I'm Jada. I've had a dream that reoccurs occasionally for the last couple of years. 
I'm in a small town in the Midwest. I'm all alone. I don't know anyone. I'm the only person of color on a crowded street. Everybody's looking at me. They all know I don't belong there. I can't find anyone I know and I don't know where I am. I'm afraid. I know where this dream comes from. It comes from fear. My brothers and sisters, we need to stop fearing each other. We need to start caring for each other. So, here's the first step. We need to start with asking who we are. And me? I think of myself as a good person. I forgive easily when others hurt me. Are you hurt? I'll be there by your side. I don't talk behind others' backs, and I give a helping hand whenever I can. I've put a lot of effort into becoming a good person. It took a lot of work, and I'm proud of it. I'm also black. I put no effort into that. Others can define me as black if they want. I don't mind. I'm very proud of that, too. But it's being a good person that I continue to work hard at every day. So if you ask me who are my people, I answer that my tribe is all brothers and sisters everywhere of goodwill. So it takes a little more effort to find the brothers and sisters in my tribe. I can look at you and tell what race you are. But if I want to know if you're truly in my tribe, if you're a brother or sister of goodwill, I've got to get to know you. Do you accept me for who I am? Do you accept others who don't look like you or think like you without judging them first? Do you badmouth those who are different from you? These are the things that I need to know. So to my conservative brothers and sisters of goodwill, I say, I know you're out there. I know you think different than me. We have different beliefs. That's fine. I don't care about that. What I care about is do you judge me before you know anything about me? I know you hear lots of voices telling you that since I'm a Black Lives Matter protester, I'm pro-violence or anti-government or many other things. I'll be honest. I hear that since you're conservative, you're a lot of things you probably aren't. I'll make you this deal. I won't believe any of those things about you unless you show me that they're true. If you don't believe what you hear about me, unless I prove otherwise. To put it more simply, I'm going to stop fearing you. Will you stop fearing me? When I hear voices telling me how bad you are, I'll tell them to stop. Will you do the same for me? When we do this, we'll put a stop to a fear and hate that's older than our country. And finally, I want to say something to my brothers and sisters of goodwill on the police force. I know you're there. I know you would put yourself in harm's way to protect me. I know that if you and I ever had an interaction, you would treat me with respect, professionalism, and courtesy. I know that if you ever come upon me having a dispute or confrontation with a white person that you won't make any negative assumptions about me because of the color of my skin. But I know there are officers on your force that will do these things. I know you're out there every day, sometimes serving side by side with these officers. I know you see them treat black people disrespectfully, unprofessionally, and worse. I know that you see other officers treat black people in a way that makes me and so many of my friends 
fear coming in contact with the police. So, there's one more thing I need from you. When you see another officer treating a black brother or sister with disrespect, when you see another officer treating us in a way that would make us fear interacting with the police, when you hear things being said about us at the station that should never be said, I need you to speak up. I need you to speak up and call out those officers that make Black Lives Matter less than other lives. When you see a cop doing something he or she should not be doing, when a cop insults a Black person, uses excessive force, or worse, I need you to stand up. Speak out against the excessive force and, when necessary, testify against the cop. Because if you don't do this, if you don't speak up, you are no better than they are. There is a crisis in our country between the police and the black community. It exists because there are men and women on the police force who treat us with disrespect and use excessive force. But why does this happen? Does it happen because most cops are like this? I don't think so. It happens because there is a conspiracy of silence that allows it to happen. It happens because this conspiracy of silence says that there will be no consequences to cops who treat black people like this. It happens because you allow the conspiracy of silence. Stop the conspiracy. End the silence. So I say it again. If you don't speak up, if you allow the conspiracy to continue, you are just as bad as the worst offender on the police force. So I say to you, take the pledge. I'll never be disrespectful, unprofessional, or use excessive force against a black person, nor will I tolerate anyone who does. So I say again, take the pledge. Take the pledge. Jada repeated the last line just for emphasis, but the crowd had already taken it up. Jada stood on the stage looking at the sea of faces, some with arms raised, chanting, Take the pledge! Take the pledge! Jada realized her dream mentor had it right. She had known the answer all along. She just hadn't listened to herself. Molly posted a video of Jada's speech on Instagram. Within two days, it had gone viral. Within three days... Hashtag take the pledge was everywhere. And four days later, she was on the local news urging the local police to take the pledge. A week later, her phone rang. It was a number she didn't recognize. Jada answered it. The voice on the other end of the line announced, Jada, this is Robin Roberts of Good Morning America. Welcome to Nearest Fiddle, Episode 39, Breaking the Chain. At one time, the great chain of being held everyone in society in a certain place. With everyone else either above or below them, it determined each person's place in the great hierarchy that God had ordained. The second axis did much to dismantle most of the chain. 
and through the many generations since then, the chain had remained dismantled. The flower power generation of the 1960s did much to destroy what was left of the chain. The one determined remaining link has been the belief by far too many Americans that we could still divide ourselves into superior and inferior castes by the color of our skin. Prejudice against blacks is a vestige of the great chain of being that has never been dismantled in America. There are other vestiges of the great chain alive in America today as well, but in this episode, we're dealing with this particular link. In the four years of the Trump administration, we watched as an American president famously said that the gathering of a neo-Nazi white nationalist organization that left one counter-protester dead and another wounded after the attack in Charlottesville, Virginia, in August of 2017, contained, quote, very fine people on both sides, and told the far-right neo-fascist Proud Boys to stand back and stand tall. When you provide a safe space for hate, hate is what you get. I think different people define the Jim Crow era differently. But if you defined it as ending in the 1965 Voting Rights Act, I was old enough to remember the Jim Crow era. I was about eight when the Voting Rights Act passed. Though I was a little kid, I can remember seeing news reports that seemed terrible to me. Here's what I remember about racism back then. My young world was a very white world in the northwestern United States back then. Racism wasn't rampant, but there were few people who were openly racist. And when someone casually used the N-word when referring to African Americans, nobody ever corrected them. This is how hate survives. When we see it and say nothing, we are to blame along with those who hate. When I got older, into my teens, I did correct an aunt and an uncle who used that term. These were people I loved dearly, and it brought significant tension into our relationship. But they stopped using the word at least in front of me, and the tension ultimately resolved. This is uncomfortable, but it's crucial. When we see hate and do nothing about it, we allow that hate to prosper. The 1960s were an era of amazing progress in race relations, and to some degree, the 1970s were as well, at least to the degree that by 1980, if you heard a white person refer to a black person with a racist epithet, it would have shocked every white person in the room, at least in the middle-class portion of Oregon where I lived at the time. I think anyone who lived through the 1960s and 70s and saw the improvement would have never thought that 40 years later we'd still be in about the same place as we were at the end of the 1970s. Neither Reagan, Bush Sr., Clinton, Bush Jr., or Obama made race relations a priority. And then Trump was elected. And here we are. Finally, the Black Lives Matter movement gained traction. And instead of police killings of blacks being a matter for local news, or perhaps not publicized at all, such killings became national news. As recently as 2014, a survey by the Pew Research Center showed that only 32% of Americans rated police as anything other than fair or worse at police treating racial and ethnic groups equally. Yet now, it rates as a matter of one of the highest political priorities on the national radar. 
So here are my thoughts. We learn when we want to learn. To put it another way, our minds are open to new ideas and points of view when others call us in. That is, when people speak to the better angels of our nature. When we call someone out, that is, tell them that they are wrong, they interpret that as us telling them that they're bad people. We respond when we're called out by alienating the person who calls us out and, subconsciously, placing them in an out-group. We close our mind to the message that we interpret as, I'm a bad person. The rise of the racist right under Trump made them the out-group. Perhaps it made us more open to the message that black lives do matter. The well-publicized killings of Freddie Gray, Philando Castile, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, and so many others called us in. So, many Americans were already in league with the Black Lives Matter movement when Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck and killed him. It moved the zeitgeist of the nation to stop the needless killing of black people into overdrive. I have to believe that this isn't a flash in the pan, that this will end in a country in which black lives do matter and are honestly treated with the honor and respect that they've been denied for so long, not just by whites in general but by the men and women in blue throughout our country. Here's why I believe this. Blacks won the 1960s civil rights battles with nonviolence as their mantra. They healed so much of the racial tensions in South Africa with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There's a strong movement toward calling in versus calling out in our country today. Can it be that African Americans will show us the way to heal our racial divides? and they'll do so using a higher moral standard? I think so. But first we have a problem that we must overcome. The problem is one that every civil rights lawyer that has worked in this area knows well, but is far too underreported in the press. It goes by different names. It's known as the conspiracy of silence, the blue wall, or sometimes the blue shield. This is the unwritten code that no police officer shall testify against another officer in any court or administrative hearing, nor admit the wrongdoing of a fellow officer to anyone other than another officer. This means that every officer can be reasonably assured that, if accused of excessive force, the partner that was on the scene will testify that his or her use of force was appropriate for the circumstances. And as the Rodney King trial showed, in 1993, convictions against police officers can be difficult, if not impossible, with other officers testifying that the force was appropriate under the circumstances. With the conspiracy of silence, bad cops can feel free to treat people of color or disfavored minorities in any way they choose, and can be assured that their partner will have their back. The other reason for the current crisis between the police and the black community is police unions. In my opinion, this is just as important as the conspiracy of silence in perpetrating the current crisis. Police unions are different than other unions because they see it as their duty to protect their members even when they engage in unlawful violence against members of the community. These are men and women who are deputized to protect society. The fundamental purpose of their union should not be to shelter cops who abuse the extraordinary power we vest in them. Don't believe me? 
Look at Camden, New Jersey. In 2012, it was regarded as one of the most dangerous cities in America. Camden ended up disbanding its entire police force and its union. In exchange, it organized a completely new police department with an emphasis on community policing and an entirely different use of force policy. By 2019, homicides had dropped a full 63%. Violent crime decreased 42%. All crime down 41%. Camden has also experienced a 95% reduction in complaints against the police. Derek Chauvin, the cop who killed George Floyd, had 18 complaints against him. Union rules often make it impossible for cities and municipalities to fire bad cops. Steve Fletcher, a Minneapolis city councilman, said that when he tried to reform the police there, he was stymied at every turn by the local police union. One study reports that after unionization, officers were 40% more likely to use violence than before they were unionized. As an added bonus... The cost of Camden's police force went down by $80,000 after deunionizing their police force. Far too much of the discussion nationally seems to treat police as they're good or bad. Conservatives may stand up and support the police and say they are willing to put themselves in harm's way and all deserve our respect. African Americans may point to Dante Wright, Richard Brooks, Breonna Taylor, Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Freddie Gray, Tanisha Anderson, Tamara Wright, Michael Brown, George Floyd, and too many others, as the way African Americans are treated far differently from other Americans. How it is they who are in harm's way every time they are stopped by the police, and argue that this points to how the police are fundamentally corrupt and biased in their policing of blacks. As I may have pointed out before, however, and will never tire of pointing out, life is not binary. And when you're talking about any group as large as the 700,000 law enforcement officers in the U.S., you're going to find the good, the mediocre, and the bad. My experience has led me to believe that police officers tend to gravitate to both ends of the spectrum. The cops that I have personally known in my life, family, friends, and social acquaintances, have led me to believe that law enforcement is a very honorable profession that draws men and women of the highest character. This universally describes the police that I have personally known in my life. On the other hand, when I was a very young lawyer, I handled some cases involving police use of excessive force. These cases convinced me that there are people who enjoy exercising their power over other people and do so in unhealthy and extreme ways, and are the ones who engage in using excessive force far too often. Though most of the discussion is about the use of excessive force, This doesn't begin to cover the damage they do. Even when this class of cops stays within the bounds of not using excessive force, 
When they interact with a black person in bullying and demeaning ways, they tell that person, you're somehow less of a person and deserve to be treated disrespectfully. My personal experience tells me that there are far more cops in the former high-character camp than in the lower bullying camp. If this is just the experience from cops I have personally known and is far from a scientific example, an African-American from inner-city Chicago will likely have a completely different take on it. I don't know who's right. The problem, as Jada has pointed out for us, comes from the conspiracy of silence. It really doesn't matter if you're the most honest cop on the beat with an impeachable character. If you don't speak up when your fellow officers use excessive force or otherwise mistreat blacks, you're just as responsible for perpetuating poor police-black relations as the worst offender on the force. So, speak up. I know that doing so may cause tension with other officers, but that's the way it starts. One person is brave enough to stand up for what's right and is willing to take the consequences. The bravest cop in America today is the first one who will take the pledge. I'll never be disrespectful, unprofessional, or use excessive force against a black person, nor will I tolerate anyone who does. When this is done, when police refuse to stay silent when other police in the force engage in discriminatory behavior, we will see major change begin to happen. This will be the third wave. The first wave of change started with the Civil War and resulted in abolition in the 13th and 14th Amendments. The second wave culminated with the Civil Rights Era and resulted in the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts of the 1960s. The third wave will begin with the demolition of the Conspiracy of Silence or the Blue Wall. It will lead to major institutional change not only for police forces themselves, but perhaps even more important, in police unions, who prevent police departments from terminating or disciplining bad cops, that is, cops with a history of prejudicial conduct and their policing methods. The great chain of being was constructed in a benighted age of superstition long before science would allow people to see the world more accurately. The chain was largely demolished in the second axis, when thinkers like Kant, Montesquieu, and Locke would replace religion with reason. But this one part of the chain has been allowed to remain. As more and more slaves were transported from Africa to the Americas, those of European descent were allowed this one indulgence. They were allowed to believe in their superiority over those with darker skin and those who don't look like Europeans. We haven't broken this last link in the chain. Blacks still feel the sting of prejudice in the workplace, be it outright bigotry or microaggressions. But the day is coming when this will happen. When it does, I believe, that will no longer celebrate Martin Luther King Day. I believe the third Monday in January will be celebrated as a National Day of Thanks, in which we gather to thank African Americans for enduring the chains of slavery and the terror of post-Reconstruction South with such grace, for showing us how to endure a century and more of struggle for civil rights with such dignity. I don't think I have to convince anyone Take a large segment of white Americans, 
police them so harshly that they live in fear of being stopped by the police, show them systematic prejudice, and let them hear arguments how they are inferior to the rest of us. And, oh yeah, give them free access to guns. I can't imagine us handling the struggle with as much dignity and grace as African Americans have. So let me say, thank you. Thank you for showing us how to battle against generations and generations of bigotry and prejudice with patience, dignity, grace, and well-justified pride. Thank you for teaching us Jada's lesson, that our in-group is not others who look like us, but other men and women of goodwill. Your reading this week is 400 Souls, a community history of African America, 1619 to 1919, edited by Ibram X. Kendi and Keisha N. Blaine. What? I haven't convinced you of the grace and dignity of this amazing group of Americans? Read the book. I think you'll be convinced. Enjoy. This week, once again, I'd like to thank our amazing cast of voice actors. The part of Jada was played by Miara Simpson. Molly was played by Lauren Chu. And the visitor was played by Deborah Elizabeth M. The narrator, as always, was played by my wife and amazing partner, Alice Barnes-Brown. See you next week.